William Tyndale was betrayed. He was betrayed by his own church. God's people have long been people of the book who treasure God's word. But in Tyndale's day, in 16th century England, the only authorized version of the Bible was in Latin. And this deeply distressed Tyndale, who longed for God's people to have God's word in their own language. But the church would not allow it. One evening over dinner, Tyndale was teased by a Catholic priest who said, we were better be without God's law than the Pope's. Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the scripture than you do. And that was Tyndale's life mission, to translate the Bible into the common English so that God's people could have it and read it. But the church wouldn't allow it. The very people who should have loved God's word best and made it widely known hid it away. And the official church was burning English Bibles. And they were trying to burn Tyndale too. Tyndale was also betrayed by his country. You see, to do his work, he needed permission from the king, who at that time was the infamous King Henry VIII. And because of the king's relationship to the church, he rejected Tyndale's requests. For 100 years, the law in England had stated, it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. Tyndale was rejected by his country and forced to flee for his life. Our faithfulness is tested in the fires of adversity. And so in the face of all this opposition, Tyndale had to decide, would he suffer so that the plowboy could have an English Bible that he could read? Was his life's mission Worth the cost. Well, Jesus also had to count the cost of his mission. Jesus had long been committed to doing his Father's will. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Jesus was sent on a mission from his Father. But what about when his father's will meant suffering? When Jesus' mission called him to lay down his life, would he step forward? Would Jesus remain faithful in the face even of betrayal? Well, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 18 to see how Jesus responds to the unfaithfulness 
of others. John chapter 18. If you're using the Bible provided in the pew, that's page 759. Jesus had long lived on the knife edge of persecution. His opponents schemed to kill him for many years, but Jesus escaped their clutches. He had more to do and to teach. But something changed in John chapter 12. Jesus says in that chapter that his hour had come. And so he takes his disciples and prepares them for what's about to happen. And then John chapters 13 through 17, they they bring us into these intimate last hours where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, teaching them about his love. He strengthens them for life after his departure, a life that will be filled by the Spirit's truth and power. And then he prays for them, for their unity, for their holiness, for their witness in the world. And then the moment comes, in a garden, no less, where it all began. So let's listen to John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas, then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should happen upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as then he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, Let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake. Of them which thou gavest me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, 
Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of, the, one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The main idea of this sermon is that Jesus remains faithful even in the face of great faithlessness. 
Jesus remains faithful even when all others are faithless. Jesus' matchless faithfulness and character is seen in sharp contrast to the five times that he's betrayed in this chapter. First, of course, he is betrayed by Judas in verses 1 through 12. Judas had left Jesus several hours ago. During the supper, Jesus revealed that one of the disciples would betray him. And John 13, 27 says that Satan then entered into Judas, and then Jesus said unto him, that thou doest do quickly. And then Judas got up from that table, and he left, and he exited the stage, as it were. But now he returns, and we see where he went. Verse 3 of chapter 18 tells us that he went and gathered a band of soldiers. And Judas has tried to cover all of his bases, hasn't he? He has high-ranking Roman officials and Jewish officials. And they're all armed to the teeth. If we know Judas for anything, this is it. He is the betrayer. He's the original Benedict Arnold, the original Brutus. But consider for a moment the pain of this betrayal. As we're about to see, Jesus is rejected by just about everyone in this chapter. But this betrayal is especially painful because remember how Jesus had loved Judas. And consider all that Jesus has done for him. Jesus had handpicked him to be one of his closest disciples and even entrusted him with the finances of his ministry. Judas had unique access to Jesus' teaching and attention as Jesus would often withdraw from the crowds with just the twelve to teach them and care for them especially. And just before the betrayal, Jesus had served even Judas by washing his feet and showing him special love in that way. And then right before Judas departed, Jesus even served him by feeding him food. And now, here comes Judas with clean feet and a full stomach to betray the one who only ever showed him the greatest friendship and care. This is a painful betrayal. Some of you have been betrayed by those that you love and serve. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or close family member. Beloved, Jesus says to you, I know the pain of betrayal. And he says to you, I will never treat you like that. I will never betray you. I will always be faithful to you. I will always be with you, even to the end of the age. And we see his faithfulness here in how he responds to Judas' treachery. Because Jesus, he willingly and deliberately gives himself up. Notice that throughout this interaction, Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is not a victim. 
None of this catches Jesus by surprise. Verse 4 tells us Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. And with that knowledge, Jesus deliberately leads his disciples right to a place where Judas knew where to find him. Jesus doesn't hide. He goes to a well-known place. And then when they come for him, he readily presents himself. In fact, he's in control of this entire conversation, inquiring of them two times who they're looking for. And I want to pause here to consider how Jesus identifies himself. As he affirms that he is the unique God-man. They say that they are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, an unglamorous and humble identity. And Jesus affirms that he is that man, but that he is more. In most English translations, Jesus responds saying, I am he. But the Greek suggestively reads simply, I am. This is a deliberate appropriation of the divine name, I am, or Yahweh, from the Old Testament. Jesus took that name before. He identified himself this way in John 8, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, everybody knew what he was saying. Everybody knew he was identifying himself as God. And so they took up stones to try to kill him then. And the power of this revelation is especially clear in the effect it has on these soldiers. Look again at verse 6. It says, as soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. These guys are no pushovers. These are soldiers. But the power of this revelation of Jesus saying, I am, knocks them to the ground. Throughout the Bible, this is a common response to a divine revelation and to an encounter with God. Jesus is in control. He's controlling his story here. He's controlling his own self-revelation as the God-man. He is the man from Nazareth and the great I am. And then he goes on to set the terms for his arrest in verse 8. And in doing so, he protects his followers. Jesus even protects Malchus from a well-intentioned Peter who's thankfully not a very good aim. As commentator D.A. Carson points out, Jesus is not a pathetic martyr buffeted by the ill winds of a cruel fate. He's not a victim. He's in control. And Jesus is using this control to direct events to a specific end. Namely, Jesus is protecting his people by laying down his life. As we've noted, Jesus is, in one sense, he's protecting his followers physically, right? He's protecting them from arrest, saying, let these guys go. But Jesus' words to Peter reveal that something deeper is going on here. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? This cup is not a nice thing. It is a cup filled with the wrath of God. 
the prophets speak often of this cup of judgment. Such as in Isaiah 51, verse 17, which says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. This is the cup of God's right wrath against sinners. And it is a cup that must be drunk to the bottom This is the cup that Jesus asks when he prays in agony to his Father that this cup would pass from him if there's any way. But this is the cup that Jesus is willing to drink because the Father has given it to him. And Jesus is faithful to his Father's mission. Jesus loves the Father and he loves his people. And so he deliberately lays down his life. We learn more about this sacrifice in the second betrayal, as Jesus is betrayed by the high priest. We see this a little bit in verses 13 and 14, and especially in verses 19 through 24. Jesus is betrayed by the high priest. The religious leaders have long had Jesus in their crosshairs. And that corruption goes all the way to the top. Even the high priest wants Jesus dead and puts on a a sham of a trial. These inquiries in verse 19 into Jesus' disciples and his teaching appear to be disingenuous. Because as Jesus points out in verse 20, his teaching hasn't been a secret. He has spoken openly to the world. And everybody knows what he's taught. And as verse 14 reminds us, the high priest, Caiaphas, they've already predetermined the case. They already want Jesus dead. So here are the priests, the ones appointed by God to intercede for sinners, judging the only innocent one. And how does Jesus respond to this betrayal? Well, Jesus' faithful response is to give himself up as a sacrifice for his people. Did you notice the ways that John tells the story to bring our attention to Jesus' sacrifice? He reminds us in verse 14 that Caiaphas said that it was better that one man should die for the people. That was back in John chapter 11. And in verse 51 there, John gives some commentary, and he says that Caiaphas, he was not speaking of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, unknowingly, that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. John also draws our attention to the irony of what's happening in verse 28, where As was pointed out during the scripture reading, the Jewish leaders did not enter the judgment hall of Pilate lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. While they're so careful to keep themselves ceremoniously clean, they rush headlong to put the Lamb of God to death. They love the sign of salvation more than the Savior himself. 
And Jesus endures this betrayal because he is, in fact, the Lamb of God who gives his life to save sinners. So now it's, it's time for us to pick up the thread of good news that John has woven through these verses. And that good news is this, that Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. We've been singing about this all morning long. When we sing about Christ interposing his precious blood. We're talking about him putting his blood in our place. Jesus gives up his life so that none of his people will be lost. He's the one who dies for the good of the people. He's the true and final Passover lamb who atones for the sins of the people. And he makes atonement by drinking the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. In biblical and theological terms, we would call this substitutionary atonement. And I don't normally use theological terms when I'm preaching, but you need to know that term. Substitutionary atonement means that Jesus is the substitute who pays the penalty, who atones for our sins. This is the summary of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and it's the heart of the Christian gospel This is the best part of the good news. So friend, do you realize that without this substitution, that cup of God's wrath is yours to drink? It is your and my personal sin and rebellion that must be punished. We have rebelled against our creator and king. You see, sin isn't a small thing. It's not just that we've made some mistakes. It's treason. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But God, who is full of mercy, sent his son to drink that cup for you. This sacrifice is the heart of of the gospel. And there's only one way to receive the benefits of this gift. There's only one way to receive this sacrifice, and that is to trust in Christ alone. Are you doing that? Are you depending on Jesus alone for forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God? Friend, if you're not, then trust him now and always and receive this inexpressible gift forgiveness of sins, life forevermore. That cup of wrath removed from you. This is the good news. We have considered how Jesus was betrayed by Judas and then the high priests, but there is a more painful betrayal still. Jesus is betrayed by Peter, his close friend, see this in verses 15 through 18 and verses 25 to 27. Peter is special, isn't he? Peter wasn't just one of the 12, he was one of the three, along with James and John. One of Jesus' closest friends. One with whom Jesus shared his most intimate moments on the Mount of Transfiguration where he showed them his uh, unhidden glory. He was one of the three that Jesus 
called to be with him, to pray with him in his agony in Gethsemane. Peter was a leader among leaders, often boldly stepping out in faith. He even claimed back in John 13 that he would lay down his life for Jesus. And in a way, he almost does die for Jesus here, doesn't he? Attacking a whole band of soldiers in verse 10 wasn't exactly his best idea. And if Jesus hadn't stepped in, he probably would have died. But even the best and boldest are not perfectly faithful. Even the best of us fail. Peter's failure is well known. And it's painfully drawn out here by John. He recounts denial 1 in verses 17 and 18. And then he waits. He tells us about denials 2 and 3 in verses 25 to 27. He leaves us with that expectation. John also seems to highlight Peter's betrayal by the way he phrases Peter's response. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. Peter disowns Jesus with the very opposite of Jesus' self-identification. More painful yet is Jesus' awareness of Peter's betrayal. Pastor John pointed this out to me earlier this week, that Jesus could hear Peter. Remember that Peter is close to Jesus. Peter initially got carted at the gate of the high priest, but someone, probably John, spoke to the woman who's guarding the gate and got him in. And then Luke's gospel tells us that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, that Jesus turned and looked at him. But Jesus faithfully endures this rejection, even from his closest friend. And as an author, John is giving us a a dramatic setup for what's coming, as he's the only gospel writer who reveals to us Jesus' kindness to restore Peter to fellowship with himself. Jesus loves Peter. And Peter, despite his unfaithfulness and failings, really does love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you worry that you are not good enough for Jesus? Are you regularly aware of your own shortcomings? Do you feel like a failure? Speaking in the context of marriage, Tim Keller gives a beautiful illustration of Christ's love for us. He says that in marriage, we long to be known and loved. But we're afraid that if if someone really and truly knew us, that they wouldn't love us. On the other hand, we can be afraid that if someone tells us that they love us, that they don't really know us, and that if they did, they wouldn't love us. But Jesus, friends, he knows you completely, and he loves you more than anyone else. You are both known and loved. Let this story here be a reminder to you of your Savior's mercy and grace toward you. He doesn't love you because 
He's ignorant of your failings. It's not as if he really knew you, that then he would love you, or then he wouldn't love you. He does know you, and he loves you from top to bottom, the good and the bad. He knows your shortcomings and failures and sins, and yet for all of that, he won't abandon you. Isaiah tells us in chapter 42 that Jesus will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoking candle. Jesus is tender toward us. He's kind and forgiving. So let his faithful love encourage your heart and draw you near to him. Lift up your head, beloved, and see your Savior's loving face. Something funny happened back in verse 12, and we passed it right by. It says in verse 12 that the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Really? They bound Jesus? There's a scene in a a Superman movie where Superman surrenders to the American military for questioning, right? They're suspicious of this guy. He's an an alien, and he's really powerful. And so when he gives himself up to the military, they clap him in handcuffs. That's a funny moment, right? Putting Superman in handcuffs? Here these soldiers are, dusting themselves up off the ground, just being knocked over with a word from Jesus. Binding him. And then they carry him away with all of their pretended might and power. And eventually they take him to the Roman governor, Pilate, in verse 28. And we find here that Jesus is betrayed by the Romans in verses 28 through 38. In some important ways, Pilate appears initially to be a conscientious governor, right? He humors the Jewish leaders in verse 29, coming out of his office to meet them so that they can keep up their ceremonial appearances. And then he's all business, right? Wanting to know what the accusations are against Jesus. And he he seems to see through the weak case against Jesus. Their only accusation is, well, if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't be here. And he tells them, okay, guys, you go handle this amongst yourselves. And it's here that we're reminded once again that Jesus is in control and that God is directing the hearts of evil men because the Jews point out to Pilate in verse 31 that Roman law at the time banned them from executing criminals. And then John informs us that all of that took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the way he would die. Jesus didn't just say that he would die but he explained the way that he would die. In John 12, Jesus says that he would be lifted up from the earth, which meant that he would be physically lifted up on a cross in crucifixion. And that was a Roman form of execution, and a particularly terrifying one at that. The Jews could not do that. And so, in God's plan, Jesus will be delivered up to the Romans. But Pilate needs to do some more investigating first. And so he questions Jesus. And it's in this questioning that we see Jesus remaining faithful, steadfast to his purpose. Pilate's line of questioning reveals some information that he's been fed, right? Because he starts questioning Jesus about his kingship. And this is a politically problematic question. 
Because if Jesus is claiming to be a king, well, then he's a threat to the peace. He's a threat to Rome. And to put a fine point on it, he's a threat to Pilate. And Jesus is very careful and clear in his response. Because Jesus affirms clearly that he is a king. But he's not the kind of king that Pilate would understand or expect. Jesus affirms three times in verse 36 that he has a kingdom, which means, of course, that he's a king. And Pilate picks up on this in verse 37, saying, Art thou a king then? And Jesus' response is translated often, Thou sayest that I'm a king. The New American Standard helps us understand the meaning of Jesus' response when it says, you say correctly that I am a king. So Jesus isn't being rhetorically evasive. He's not playing games. He's not hiding. He clearly affirms that he is a king. But he's not the kind of king that Pilate sees in the world. He's not like other kings. Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't have origins in this world, and it doesn't operate like the kingdoms of this world operate. His kingdom is heavenly in nature, and it's heavenly in authority. And this is an amazing claim, because if Jesus is the king of heaven, then he's king over all. He's king over Israel, and he's king over Rome, and he's king over Pilate. And in an amazing reversal here, this means that Jesus is actually the one in the position of power. Pilate doesn't stand in judgment of Jesus so much as he stands judged by Jesus. And so how does Jesus use his power in this moment? Will he break his bonds and destroy Pilate with a word? Well, what does he say in verse 37? He says that his mission is to point people to the truth. And that that truth is found in his voice, in his words, in his message. So rather than coerce or bully Pilate, Jesus calls him to hear his voice, the voice of truth in the flesh. Harvest Bible Church, this is how Christ's kingdom advances. Not through the powers of this world, but through the power of Jesus' words. So that is why we don't put our hope ultimately in political leaders. They're important. We pray for them, but as much as they try to address pressing concerns, even moral concerns, they cannot be our Savior. And as much as we would formally acknowledge this, our political dialogue, our attitudes, and our social media feeds should reflect that. This should temper our expectations knowing that no political party will bring heaven on earth. And it should remind us that when our candidate wins or loses, that the cause of Christ doesn't win or lose with them. Christ's kingdom is heavenly. It advances through the proclamation of his message. Therefore, as a church and as Christians, we advance Christ's cause by faithfully proclaiming the good news about Jesus. This is why we pour our resources into proclaiming that message. This is why we send gospel partners around the world so that they can tell people who haven't heard about Jesus. There are lots of good things that that we can and should be doing as a church and as Christians, but in the midst of that, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be pointing people to the truth 
just as Jesus does here. So evangelism isn't a kind of a side project or a distinct separate program that's separate from everything else we're doing. When we think about growing in evangelism and pursuing the Great Commission, we shouldn't first think about how we can have others do that for us. We should see this as our own privilege and responsibility that we can personally engage in telling others about Christ. We can do that formally through programs like Good News Club or Vacation Bible School, but we should especially consider how we can tell others about Jesus in our normal relationships with our family, family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. You realize the Bible says in Acts 17 that God has put you in the place that you are, in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your family. God put you there. And we know that the mission that he's given us is to tell others about Christ. So we can tell those that we know where God has placed us about Jesus. And in order to do that well, we have to love God and others enough to suffer inconvenience. This is not going to be comfortable. Every time I read about Jesus' trial here, I'm shocked that he doesn't defend himself, right? I would have pleaded my case. But Jesus understands that there are more important things than his own reputation and comfort. There are more important things than our reputation and comfort. And Harvest, we're going to have a hard time pointing people to the truth if our main concern is to make ourselves look good. We're going to have a hard time being ambassadors for the king of heaven if we aren't willing to be uncomfortable. So let's follow Jesus by making room in our heart to endure hardships, even false accusations, so that we can point people to the truth about Jesus. When faced with the truth, Pilate, somewhat ambiguously, asks, what is truth? What I would give to know the tone of his voice. Are these being said with a, with a scoffing sneer? Or were these the words of a man wearied by life? We don't know. But what he does next can be appropriately described as a form of betrayal because Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He affirms at the end of verse 38, I find in him no fault at all, and yet he still offers Jesus up to the Jewish mob. Rather than protect and defending the innocent, Pilate hands him over. And then we see the final betrayer in this chapter, that Jesus is betrayed by the Jews, by his own people in the last few verses. The people here make a terrible choice, trading Jesus, their king, for a robber. This is what John told us would happen even from the very beginning of his gospel. He says in chapter 1 that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. He says in John 3 that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Samuel Crossman said it so well in his hymn, Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, Hosannas to their king. Then crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. They rise and needs will have my dear Lord made away, a murderer they save, 
the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he his foes from thence might free. Jesus suffered much through these betrayals, even as he suffered many things throughout his ministry. He had nowhere to lay his head and was driven out of his homeland more than once. Jesus' followers have suffered like their master through the centuries. Tyndale was one of those who suffered. He wrote in a letter of, My pains, my poverty, my exile out of my natural country, and bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed, and finally, innumerable, innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I endure. While in exile in Belgium, Tyndale was befriended by an Englishman named Henry Phillips. And over the course of several months, they became close friends and they developed trust with one another. One evening, Tyndale was walking to dinner with his friend, Phillips, and they came to a, a, a narrow passage in front of the house that they were going to eat at. And they both couldn't fit through this passageway side by side. And so one of Tyndale's biographers writes that Mr. Tyndale would have put Phillips before him, but Phillips would in no wise but put Master Tyndale before, or that he pretended to show great humanity. He's pretending to be kind. So Master Tyndale, being a man of no great stature, he's short, went before, and Phillips, a tall and comely person, followed behind him who had set officers on either side of the door upon two seats, who being there could see who was coming in. And coming through the same entry, Phillips pointed his finger over Master Tyndale's head down to him, that the officers who sat at the door might see that it was he whom they should take. And they took him. And they took him to a castle where he was held prisoner until he was eventually strangled and burned at the stake. Tyndale was betrayed by a friend. The cost of his cause was great. It cost him much suffering, and even his own life. Yet he remained faithful to his mission to translate the Bible into plain English for God's people. And each of us this morning benefit from his labor and sacrifice but you benefit all the more from Christ's sacrifice. For he too was faithful to his mission, even in the face of great unfaithfulness. Jesus was betrayed by nearly everyone, by Judas, by Peter, by the Jewish and Roman rulers, by his own people. And yet through it all, he remained faithful. Praise the Lamb who was slain for us. Let's pray together.